Well, two years ago, we spent the better part of a year in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. That's Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. In those chapters, I, I think they are one of the most, if not the most, powerful pictures of what the kingdom of God can look like in all of Scripture. And at the end of that Sermon on the Mount, Jesus stopped speaking and the crowds were amazed. And they were amazed at one thing in particular, that he taught as one as having authority and not as their scribes. They were amazed at that fact, that Jesus was teaching as though he had authority and not just talking like commentary about Scriptures that were already written. Now, for the past several weeks, we've been following Jesus as he's been backing up those teachings on authority with deeds of authority. So Jesus, the one who speaks with the authority of God, now performs deeds with the authority of God. I feel like we should just get something out on the table right away. And that is that in our culture, we should admit an uneasiness with the word authority. There's a general distrust, there's different ranges of this, but there's a general distrust of authority. In fact, we've turned adjectives like authoritarian into pejoratives. They connote negative feelings, don't they? Some people are extremists in their fear of authority. Uh, In 1996, I was four-wheel driving with my buddy Tom out in the backwoods of Port Angeles. We were like 20 or 30 miles outside of town on this old dirt road, and all of a sudden there's this crude berm in the middle of this already crude trail that we were uh, driving on in his Bronco. And we get out, and at first we saw deer bones, and I thought that was interesting. I don't know why I added that. But anyway, so then there was this black plywood sign. It was spray-painted plywood. And in white, horrible writing, it said, Rat Hole USA, stay out. We do not pay taxes. We do not recognize the U.S. government. We will shoot trespassers. Okay, that's weird. So we we ran really fast. So now we may not be extremists like the people of Rat Hole USA, but... You know, and I, and I, I tend to appreciate things like the police. Um, I used to be in federal law enforcement in the Coast Guard, and I like democratic government for the most part. Um, but no matter what side of the spectrum you're on, we don't like being told what to do in general. Nobody does. And I think partly that's because we're rebels, <laughs> at least it is for me, and partly that is because most of us at some point or another have been on the receiving end of uh, abuse of power. All right? Whether it was a tyrannical kindergarten teacher or a sports coach who was too full of themselves or a boss who thought they were God, each of us has probably been on the receiving end of uh, an abuse of power. And probably, especially if you're a parent, you've probably been on the giving end of that once in a while. We make mistakes, don't we? So when we read about Jesus and his authority, and Matthew in particular is big about talking about Jesus' authority, uh, that people marveled at his authority, we might be put off or a little bit skeptical. So I just want to get that out there in the open and say, well, what should we do about that? All this talk about Jesus' authority, we don't like authority too much. What should we do about that? Well, what I suggest is we look at the record of how Jesus uses his authority. Sure, he talks tough tough in his sermons, but how does he live? Well, so far, we've seen him live in the following way. He heals a leper, 
bringing this leper into reconciliation with the community of God. We've seen Jesus heal the paralyzed servant of a Gentile centurion. Not only healing the man, but extending grace to a Gentile. We have seen Jesus heal Peter's mother-in-law, not only with a word, but touching her hand, which broke all kinds of social barriers. We've seen Jesus calm a storm. People don't do that with their voice, with the word. And we've seen Jesus cast out demons from Gentile people. It shows he has authority and that he is good. It shows that Jesus is opposed to the powers of evil, but not only opposed to them, but is greater than the powers of evil. These examples show us that Jesus has real authority and that his authority is good. He's not like our leaders. Even if we had a presidential candidate who had all the answers to all the world's problems, that man or woman could not change much because they don't really have all that much authority with checks and balances and voters and scandals. I mean, there's just not a lot one person can do. But Jesus actually does have authority. And better than just authority, he always uses it for good. He's trustworthy, in other words. Until he proves us wrong, this is one guy that I can handle his authority. Amen? Okay. Now today, in chapter 9, we're going to be confronted again with Jesus' authority. And I want you to pay attention to what his authority has to say about God, has to say about Jesus, and has, has to say, uh, what does his authority have to do with us? How does it bear on us? And I'll ask you to stand, please, as we read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea, and he came to his own city. They brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Get up, pick up your bed and go home. And he got up and he went home. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck, terrified, and they glorified God who had given such authority to people. Lord, teach us a thing or two about your authority. Teach us a thing or two about how good you are. I pray, Lord, that this message would, would have um, whatever impact you would will it for us, Lord. I, I pray that we would leave this place more full of trust. And that we would put more of the weight of our lives on you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. You may be seated. So Matthew starts off with a detail about a boat. 
Uh, it's a way of linking material together. So Jesus is on the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. He gets in a boat and he goes over to where the Gentiles are. He casts out the demons and the people freak out and they ask him to leave. And so he leaves now in a boat. And so it's all linked together. These stories are happening uh, in one big teaching here. He gets into the boat. Um, and he heads back to what Matthew calls his own city. Jesus is associated with four main cities or towns in Matthew. So he's born in Bethlehem. He was kind of nurtured and raised in Nazareth. Capernaum is his city. It's where his home base of operations is, even though he's kind of a wandering pilgrim. Uh, like a pretty, like Gandalf, only something. So he, he wanders around a lot, but Capernaum seems to be his city. And then he's got Jerusalem, where he's uh, the source of his confrontations, where he is ultimately killed and then resurrected. In this story, Jesus sails to his city, to Capernaum. Now, I say this a lot, but I'll say it again. I, I, besides just preaching out of the Bible, I love to teach the Bible as we go, because I, I think we need to be honest about some assumptions. We cannot assume that we all know the scriptures as well as the New Testament writers assume that we know the scriptures. I mean, they're writing ultimately to these first generation Christians, many of them who are Jewish, who know the scriptures. I mean, by 13, Jewish boys had to have the Torah memorized. Does anyone have the Torah memorized? Yeah, I, I don't either. And, and so we have to assume that we don't necessarily pick up all the little illusions and things. So I like to just teach a little bit about the Bible as we preach out of the Bible. Is that all right? Okay, so if we know the scriptures, we know that this story about Jesus healing this paralytic uh, occurs actually in Matthew, Mark, and in Luke. All three of those gospels uh, have the story. And if you were to read that account in Mark, in Luke's versions of the story, you'd recognize that Matthew leaves out a whole bunch of the details that are included in Mark's version and in Luke's version. Matthew is the longest of all the Gospels, it's 28 chapters, and yet it has by far the shortest account of this healing. Now Mark, on the other hand, is the shortest of the four Gospels, and it has the longest, most detailed account of the story, and that's pretty common actually. Mark is, for my money, it's a lot more fun to read Mark. He's got, immediately Jesus did that, and he does this, and he heals, and he does all these details, whereas Matthew's just kind of like didactic and... Very short little pericopes. Well, there's a couple of reasons for this, I think, that Matthew's version is shorter, and he often shortens things. First, we're dealing with an oral culture in which teachings were transmitted uh, for generations by telling stories over and over and over again, rather than a literary culture where if I don't write something down, I forget it almost within five minutes. In fact, it's not common where you and I are talking after church, you're like, hey, let's get to for coffee next week. I'm like, if you don't email me tomorrow, I will forget. Or if I don't put it in my calendar on my iPhone, I will forget. Right? It's just we're not used to holding a lot of information in our head. Very different from this culture. In fact, there were designated storytellers in many of these communities that were designated keepers of the lore, if you will. I just finished a really interesting book on Celtic Christianity. Uh, it deals with where the Celts came from. There's some uh, evidence that they even came as far as India. But the part I was focused on was in what we now call the UK and Ireland in about the, the 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries. And these Celtic groups, before Christianity came, there were an oral culture. And one of the most important uh, parts of that, those Celtic communities was the role of the bard or the folk singer. 
And the bard would, you know, hear a story about maybe a, a warrior's famous exploits in a, in a battle, and, and he would turn these into songs, and you would sing these songs over and over again, and they would be passed down. They would immortalize the, the deeds of warriors or great kings. And, of course, they, they've turned into pub music. And many of the pub songs that are really fun to sing if you go to an Irish pub or something, like, where do they get all these great songs? And sometimes we don't even know the full stories behind them, but they're telling stories, and that's remnants of these bards, right, telling stories through song. And as those cultures became more literate, the, the bards kind of faded in importance and the scribes rose in importance, people who could actually write the record down. In context of the Gospels then, these stories of Jesus were preserved through oral tradition. And there were lots of stories about Jesus for the first few generations. So when the Gospel writers wrote their accounts, they assumed that many of their original audience would already know like the bigger picture. So, for example, think of how I might employ a sermon illustration in a sermon, right? So a lot of times you know... Uh, that I tell these Coast Guard stories, and I probably tell too many, but that's part of my life. Seven years I was in the Coast Guard, right? And the most effective sermon illustrations are ones that most of us can relate to. So was there anyone here in the Coast Guard before? All right, Andy, and I know Matt Thompson. But other than that, that's a pretty low percentage. So I would not tell you a Coast Guard story that starts like this. One time, I overheard the OOD telling the EOW that the OWS was, act, was acting up and there was a sheen out the portside discharge. I mean, can you believe that? Like, you, what does that do for you? But last week, I told a Coast Guard story about a massive storm that I was in because you've seen storms before and you can make that leap to, oh, storms are bad. He's on a boat that's bobbing in the storm. I bet it was scary, right? So that's pretty accessible for you, right? And, and, and same would be if I used a... Um, a movie illustration, like a popular movie that most of us have probably seen or at least heard of. A few weeks ago, I talked about Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And I told the part about where Indy and his dad, the, the, the Holy Grail has fallen down this crevasse and Indy's trying to get it and his dad's like, let go, son, it's not that important. And my point was on perspective, that Indiana Jones, his whole life work, his dad's life work is falling down the crack and he lets it go so that he can save their lives. Perspective. Now, just because I told you that little part of the story doesn't mean I don't know the whole movie. And in fact, I'm assuming that you actually know most of that movie because you, if you know the rest of the movie, you would know, gosh, that was uh, Indiana Jones' dad. It was his whole life's work. And how hard it would be to let that go. If you know the rest of the story, it adds, it adds something to my little clip that I just shared with you. If you don't know the rest of the story... I've still explained enough to where you understand the point. Okay. I think there's some of this going on in Matthew. If you don't know the story, he tells you enough to understand. But if you know Mark's version, man, it just sharpens Matthew's point all the more. The second reason that Matthew shortens his version is to make a theological point. Again, if you know the other, more detailed version of the story, you might find yourself asking, man, I like Mark's better. How come, he, how come Matthew left out all those cool things about you know, Mark, uh, the, the guy's friends burying a, opening up a hole in, in the roof of the house and lowering the paralytic down in the middle of one of Jesus' revival meetings or whatever he was doing in there teaching in this house? I mean, that, that's a lot cooler story. Why isn't that there? Dale Bruner says it well. Mark's gift is to give us all the colorful details to make a story jump. 
Right? Matthew's gift is to give us just the essential details to make a story sharp. And he goes on to say all this stuff like, I imagine Mark was younger than Matthew, a lot more fun. Mark is more like Luther. I imagine Matthew is older and crustier. He's more interested in the moral law. He's more like Calvin. And he goes on to this whole thing. It was really funny. But that's kind of the idea. Matthew is a consummate teacher. In fact, all you teachers out there, probably like Matthew, it's very organized. He just crams all like teaching section. And then he crams all these stories that probably happened chronologically in a totally different order. Here's miracle stories, and then more teaching stories, and more miracle stories. And everything's told like four different times. Same stories over and over again. Just so you get the point, right? That's what teachers need to do over and over. That's why every week I tell you the gospel. Because I'm a teacher, and I want you to get it. And I want to get it. So, Matthew wants the focus to be more on Jesus, and more on Jesus' authority, than he does wanting to share the spotlight with these really faithful friends of the paralytic. He probably assumes we know the rest of the story, and that makes his omission of those details all the more sharp. So, let's continue on with our passage. They, meaning the friends, brought a paralyzed man to see Jesus. And seeing their faith, Jesus says to the paralytic, Take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Seeing the faith... Seeing the faith of those who brought the paralytic friend. Now, how on earth do you see faith? It is something that you can take a picture of, or draw, or smell, or touch. I mean, how did they see these friends' faith? Were they wearing cross necklaces, or what would Jesus do, bracelets? Probably not. Uh, Faith in Jesus is the bringing together of two parts. First, it is the bringing together of believing in the reality of Jesus, believing in his desire to act and in his authority to act. So, I believe in my head that Jesus is good, that he is able to do what he wants to do, and that he does what is best. That's one half of faith. The other half of faith is living differently because of it. Living differently because of it. Just believing in your mind that Jesus is good and able is not faith. And acting like a person without faith, without any Jesus in your life, is not faith. Water. Here we go, uh, chemistry people. Water, right, is made up of hydrogen and oxygen through a covalent bond. Okay, but if you put hydrogen over there in the room and oxygen over there, assuming you can keep them apart because their covalent bondageness wants to come together, assuming you can keep them apart, you don't have water. You just have two different atoms, right? Or actually three, two hydrogen and... Get it? Okay, so, so you've got two different things. They're not water until they come together and bond. And the same is true with faith. You don't have faith if you just believe something in your head and you don't have faith if you just go through the motions. The faith is the bringing together the belief that Jesus is good and has authority and the action that results from that. So these guys have faith. Jesus sees it because they bring their friend to Jesus, trusting he has authority to do what's right. And Jesus responds to these friends, to this whole situation, with kind of two weird things to say, in my opinion. First is, take courage. What an odd thing to say right in the beginning. 
It sounds a bit weird, but if we take Mark's account into consideration, we have to remember that these friends have just tried to get to Jesus, but the crowd was too thick. They then climbed on a stranger's roof and cut a hole in it. And then a bunch of roofing material probably fell down on these people's heads, including Jesus' head. And then they lowered this guy down. Now, this man was paralyzed. So here, there he is. His friends are up there. He's getting lowered down through a roof with a bunch of angry people and a really angry homeowner who probably didn't have homeowner's insurance back then. And there's Jesus, the Lord, who you're trying to get to. I would be terrified. So it's really cool and gracious that Jesus then says to this poor man who cannot move, Take courage, son. Literally, take courage, child. Technon. It's the male word for child. Take courage, child. And this, this is not in the scripture, and this is completely me. But this is what I imagine might be communicated in those words. Take courage, child. It's okay. I'm the source of their faith. I'm the object of their faith. I am holy and I am good. I have authority. Social conventions and manners and even roofs are not as important to me as you are. A child made in my father's image. And if you have ears to hear, made in my image. The second part of this statement is even more unexplained. Your sins are forgiven. I just think that's weird. They came to get this man healed, and you would expect Jesus to say, Rise. I don't know, something cool like that. I don't know, I'm not Jesus, but you know, something cool like get up or you're healed or, or, or whatever he does. But he doesn't do that. And by the way, it says a lot about Jesus if the expected thing would be to, like, say, get up to a paralyzed person. I mean, just think about that. But Okay. Instead, Jesus forgives this man's sins. And I wonder, what are we supposed to make about this? Uh, first of all, some cultural historical background, because that usually helps in these situations. There is quite a bit, and when I say quite a bit, I, I saw 12 sources that are in my notes if you'd like them. Uh, 12 sources of written evidence that both first century Jews and first century Gentiles believed that sin was the primary cause of emotional, spiritual, and physical ailments. Primarily, sin of the sick person uh, committed or sin that uh, the sick person's family committed. They believed to be the cause of these things. So there's a prevalent connotation with sickness uh, of this sort. Paralysis, leprosy, blindness, deafness, demonization, and lameness. So here's how the general assumption works. I have one of those problems. You automatically just think, oh, he's done something wrong. That's just kind of the MO of the culture. Okay, But Jesus, in his ministry, clearly debunks that assumption. Sometimes he does it very subtly. So here's an example. He healed the leper in the last chapter in Matthew 8, and he doesn't say anything about the man's sins. What he does is heals the leper, brings him back into a place where he can rejoin community, and he sends him off to the temple where he can go atone for his sin there gets even more specific. After that, he heals a paralyzed man from a distance. He says nothing about the paralyzed man's sins. Now, it's not that these people weren't sinners. It's just that 
according to this story, Jesus isn't assuming their sin caused their ailment. All right. Now it gets even more specific. In John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples encounter a blind man. And his disciples ask this question, so it's still even in their minds that sin is bad. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? That's right in there in John chapter 9. So it's just this assumption that sin causes these problems. And Jesus says these words. It was neither that this man sinned or his parents sinned. But it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. All right. So Jesus counters the popular notion that personal or family sin is the root of all illness. He just says that's not always true. On the other hand, popular notions become popular notions because the notion is sometimes true, right? So Canadians aren't always the cause of long lines at Costco. But that doesn't mean that Canadians are never the cause of long lines at Costco, right? They're not mutually exclusive. Just because sin isn't always the cause of illness doesn't mean that sin is never the cause of illness. And I think that's what we're dealing with in, in our story here. 1 Corinthians 11 specifically says that some in the Christian community were sick and even died as a result of their sin. In James 5, we see an example of the elders coming together to pray for sick people and not only praying for them to be physically healed, but forgiven. There seems to be a mixture of those two at times. And I think um, that many times when sin is the root of sickness, it's not some direct, like, God zapping you for something you did wrong. It's not like an advanced punishment, for, you know, judgment come early on you. I think a lot of times our sin causes us anguish on the inside. In fact, Jennifer read earlier from Psalm 32. And my body wasted away while I you know, held the sin inside. But when I confessed it, you healed me. That's a gross paraphrase. But When I feel guilt and shame, isolation from God and others, these, these illnesses can manifest. Think about a time when you've done something that you're really ashamed of or failed to do something or said something that, that really hurt somebody else and it might have caused you a sleepless night or a stomach ache or a headache. Sometimes we might say, I'm so ashamed, I feel like I'm going to be sick. It actually makes us feel bad. In counseling, if you go to a good counselor, sure they're going to ask you what you think and they're going to ask you what you feel, but they might also say something like, is this manifesting itself anywhere in your body? And you might think, oh, that was weird. Oh, yeah, I'm really tight right here. Or I've got this, this like, lead weight in my gut. Or it, might, I mean, it manifests itself. All, your body never lies. You can fool yourself. And guys, we're so emotionally unintelligent a lot of the times. Uh, I don't know how I feel. Uh, <laughs> we, we just want to use thinking words all the time. Great questions about the body, though. Your body will never lie if there's something going on. Anxiety can cause sleeplessness, hypertension, ulcers, and in more extreme cases, there's something called somatoform disorder. So soma is Greek for body. And in extreme cases, there's something called <clears throat> conversion disorder. And the idea is that your emotional problems are converted into physical problems. All right, Conversion disorder. And in extreme cases, guilt and shame can cause paralysis of limbs. You can look at that at the DSM-4. It's on the internet. <laughs> uh, 
So Jesus seems to know the root of what ails us, not just the symptoms, which makes a lot of sense since he made us, right? The paralytic uh, servant of the centurion in chapter 8 needed physical healing. But this paralytic needs forgiveness. He is in a prison of his own sin and his own shame. And he needs to be delivered from this bondage. He's done something. We don't know what it is. Something so grievous has happened to him. Could be, I mean, who knows? Let's not speculate. But it made him so guilty, he's trapped in his paralysis. And the same can be true for us. Um, Yeah, we may not be physically paralyzed, but because of guilt and shame, we can become socially paralyzed, feeling that we're unworthy to participate fully in community. We could be paralyzed with feelings of inadequacy and fear that if anyone found out about the real me, my whole world would come crumbling down. And so we we hold people at an arm's length, or even, this is a really churchy thing to do, we give a little bit of ourselves so we look authentic and real, and then we hold back the real stuff behind. We might confess a little bit of the socially acceptable, the cool sins. Yeah, I struggle with pride, which is really like, I'm awesome. Um... But, you know, the, the, the shameful stuff, you know, we kind of keep behind because we we're afraid. And Jesus enters into this situation, and he, like a surgeon, just gets right to the point. You, your sins are forgiven, son. He's doing what the angel of God told Joseph he was, his son was going to do. In Matthew one twenty one. the angel comes to Joseph and says, You shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, which means God saves. For he will save his people from their sins. Well, Jesus doesn't even finish getting these controversial words out of his mouth before the religious know-it-alls get bent out of shape and claim he's committing blasphemy. Since, of course, only God can forgive sin. Let me say it this way. We can forgive sin. Like when you sin against me and I against you, we can forgive each other. But only God can forgive sin to God. Because every sin, even though it affects other people, ultimately is a sin against God. Uh, Psalm 51 talks about this idea. And only God can forgive sins that are committed against God. And so these scribes, these uh, religious teachers, the seminary professors... um, They get mad about this and claim that Jesus is committing blasphemy. Jesus knows their thoughts and he he calls them evil, which, by the way, is much more than just a side comment. Because if you know your Old Testament, only one person knows the thoughts and hearts of men, and that's God. So Jesus, even in that statement, is revealing a little bit about his identity. Jesus recognizes that it's easy to say someone's sins are forgiven, even though it's a little bit dangerous and presumptuous unless you actually know what you're talking about. What isn't easy is to heal paralyzed people when there's an audience, because either you can or you can't, and everyone can see it. So he tells the man to get up and to go home. And he gets up and he goes home. I mean, this is we lose, I think, the amazing part of this uh, story and all of the controversy I should have made this into two sermons so I'm going to just cut my losses here and I'm going to leave us with two implications two implications all right first of all 
I just encourage you, and I'm part of that you, to bask in this good news. This is a very uh, gospel-filled message. Jesus forgives a man of his sins without a temple, without a sacrificed animal, without going through the Jewish priesthood. Jesus forgives this man before he gets his act together, before he starts living out the Sermon on the Mount, before he does anything. And the one thing I do believe about this man that he brings to the table is I believe he had a repentant heart. We know from the story that Jesus knows the hearts and minds of people. And in other gospel accounts and in the epistles, we know that a repentant heart is required to receive this. And that's really good news because you don't need to be all squared away and perfect to receive those words from Jesus child, your sins are forgiven. You don't need to be get all the, the dirt off and the polish off before you come to Him. What you do need is to be genuinely like upset about it. Like, sorry, like I don't want to live this way. And I keep failing. You need to be penitent. That's an okay word to use these days. Penitent. It means sorry. And... Repentant means willing to change. Like I, and I don't even know, God, how that's going to look. I don't think I have it within myself, but I need you. I need you. Maybe you can't even say the words. Maybe guilt and shame have paralyzed you in a certain part of your life. Jesus knows. He already knows. He has the authority to forgive. In fact, I don't think he wants anything more. I mean, judging on the fact that he did die for us. I don't think he wants anything more than to rescue us from this bondage of sin and shame. And if that's true, the second thing, if Jesus wants nothing more than to set us free, to send us home. You know what I see? He sends the man home. Just, okay, I know I said there's two sermons here. Let me just go on the side. Remember the guy's paralyzed. And what happens when you have a physical ailment in that culture? You're cut off. You're cut off from temple, from forgiveness then if you can't go to temple. You're cut off from your family because you're seen as damaged goods. It was believed that you did something wrong if you were like that. So you're scoffed at, you're marginalized. Get up and go home is more than just, yay, I can walk now, but yay, I can have a life again. Yay, I can be integrated into community. And that's what Jesus does for us. Is, you know, we feel like when our sin is, is paralyzing us and gripping us and when we're ashamed to be who we are, we walk around like wraiths, like walking dead. We're around community, but we're not really feeling like we're a part of it. And what Jesus says is, Child, your sins are forgiven. Get up and go home. Go be a functioning partner of this little group of people, this new community I've started. It's called the church. And I've got all kinds of little outposts of it around the world. There's one at Lettered Streets. You know? That's kind of... Go be a functioning partner of this community. I've made you whole. Go home. And then he's given us the task... To be reconcilers. After his resurrection, Jesus tells his disciples, the pillars of the early church, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, their sins have been retained. John twenty twenty three. Now hear this. I almost didn't even say that quote because there's a whole lot of context behind it. This is not saying that you or I as the church have like this some kind of authority of God to forgive on God's behalf or to withhold forgiveness on God's behalf. We don't have that authority. 
But what we are authorized to do is to proclaim the forgiveness that Jesus has secured on the cross. We get to tell the good news that it's available to everybody. So it's not like you or I are like, I feel like you can be forgiven, Ryan, but not you, Jeannie. That's not how that works. What we do is we proclaim what's already been done. And that's good news. We are Jesus' deputies. We are His apostles, His messengers, His voice, His hands, His feet. We are the sent ones called out to proclaim that forgiveness and new life is available through Jesus. And verse 8 says that the crowds were awestruck and they glorified God who had given such authority to plural anthropos, to people. Plural. If they were just talking about Jesus, it would be in the singular, to the man, or to Jesus. But they praised God, who had given such authority to people. Of course, later on in chapter 16 of Matthew, Jesus is going to send out his apostles to go cast out demons and to go declare the good news of the kingdom and forgiveness of sin. We have authority to proclaim that God has made forgiveness possible in Jesus. We have the joy and the privilege of communicating this good news. And so I ask you, and I ask me, how are we doing at this? Not only with our words, but with our lives. I mean, my actions and your actions, and this is cliche, but these actions, these lives that we live might be the first Bible someone ever reads. You know, you usually don't start off reading the Bible and then meet a Christian. (laughs) It doesn't usually work that way. So you might be the first Bible, the first bit of gospel that somebody else is reading. And, And the way you are with your friends and your family and your neighbors, your kids, it all speaks volumes about, not about how moral you are, it all speaks volumes about what you really believe about forgiveness, about grace about God's mercy.